Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 1 to 7, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, and 9 to 10, and chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malachishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died. Thus Saul died, he and his three sons, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them, and also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading that. That was a longer passage full of some strange names, but you really nailed those pronunciations. You did a great job. So today, um, we're in our second message in our fall series called Renew. It's on the book of Chronicles. As I shared last week, the book of Chronicles was written in order that we might rediscover two things, who we are and why we're here. It was written to bring a renewal of hope and a renewal of purpose and mission to our lives. And just a quick review if you're coming for the first time and you're wondering, wow, that's a strange set of passages for us to be reading. What's this all about? Let's do a quick review as to 
why Chronicles was written in the first place and who it was written to. It was written during one of the hardest and most discouraging times in the story of Israel. Really, as, as a people, they had gone through their lowest point in their story. It was called the exile where they lost everything. They lost their land. They were kicked out of the land. They were enslaved, and they had lost the centerpiece of their faith, the temple. They had come out of this lowest point with a lot of excitement. So this is on the other side of the exile. They had returned to the land, and there was some progress that was being made. Their lives, though, despite some progress, were not turning out as they had hoped. And it was really nothing like the the Old Testament prophets had described when they described the return of the exile. When the exile is over, they had built expectations sky high, but the people were experiencing a lot of difficulty, a lot of disillusionment and discouragement because it wasn't matching up. Some were pressing on, but it was hard. And they needed something to keep them going, something to help them endure. And that's why Chronicles was written. It was written to tell the story of how God has worked in the past in order to inspire hope in the present. So last week, if you were here, you might remember that we looked at nine chapters. And those nine chapters were full of names. They were genealogies. So we're reducing that this week. We're only looking at at three chapters. And if you do have your Bibles and you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, you'll notice that In these three chapters, there are also a lot of names, and we're going to talk about some of those names in a moment. But I can imagine um, the author of Chronicles thinking, okay, I'm writing a book of inspiration. My task is to inspire the discouraged and disillusioned people of God. And so he started in a strange way. He said, I'm going to start with nine chapters of genealogy, and he probably realized That was a little bit hard for everybody to hear or for everybody to read. And so now, as I kick off, I'm going to start the story in chapter 10. I need to start it right. I need to start it with a bang. It needs to be like an inspiring pep talk. One of the things that is interesting to me is when we get to see inside of a locker room. I love sports. We get to see inside the coach is mic'd up, and you hear him talking to the players, or you hear her talking to her players, and you get to hear, what are they saying? Because I've, I've coached a little bit. I've coached some baseball and some basketball. And even though I do some public speaking for a living, giving that pep talk, knowing what to say without sounding like you're just a string of cliches, it's a really hard thing to do. And so I wonder, what do the pros do? What do the pro coaches say in in the locker room at at halftime or before the game? But when you listen, it's pretty much always the same thing. It's always like, okay, guys, okay, girls, stay focused. One play at a time. You can do this. Don't give up. We're good enough. Play defense. Play together. Leave it all on the floor. Whether it's t-ball All the way to the pros, coaches are always just saying that same speech over and over again. I'm like, isn't there something new or inspiring? And I wonder, does that really motivate to hear all that coach speak all the time? And I think it does. It's good to be encouraged. It's good to be fired up. But I think there is one type of speech that I've heard that does make a difference. And that is if you have a good story. And you're able to tell your team a good story that motivates them. 
A number of years ago, Amelia and I, we were coaching. Before we had kids, we coached a middle school girls basketball team. It was one of the, the funnest things we ever did together. We had a really good season, and we only lost three games that season, but two of the, the games that we lost were to the same team. And the first time we played them, they actually broke one of our players' shoulders, and she was out for the whole season. So this was our arch enemy. And when it came time for the tournament, we realized if we're going to have a chance to win this tournament, we're going to have to beat that team twice that beat us twice. I'm like, oh, we got a story here, a story of redemption. We're going to take out this team that broke our teammate's shoulder. We're going to write this story of revenge, of the underdogs of coming back. And the result, we did win, and I'm very proud of that win. We won the trophy, and you could see that the girls were motivated, especially to redeem the losses that they um, had suffered that season. Why am I sharing that? Well, when it comes to Chronicles, the chronicler is saying, I've got the best story. Actually, a set of stories to start with. This is going to get people fired up. This is going to get them prepared to learn from this long history that I'm going to tell them of God's relationship with his people. And so this is the story he begins with. First Chronicles 10 through 12. It's the story of the first two kings of Israel. 10 through 12. Saul and his tragic defeat is chapter 10. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we read about David's amazing rise to become the king. As we look at these three chapters, I want to look at how they show us four things that we need to know about all spiritual renewal. Renewal is the theme of this book, and I'll just give you a definition of what I mean by renewal and the kind of renewal Chronicles is talking about. It's the kind of renewal where we find ourselves more fully orienting our lives around seeking God above all things and His kingdom first in our lives. That's the kind of renewal He's after. That we have confidence in our identity, a self-understanding of who we are, and a vibrant meaning, a vibrant life of meaning and purpose. So he tells us four things that we need to know in order to experience more and more of that life. First, and you can fill in the blanks in your outline if you want to follow along, we need to know it's going to be a fight. The thing that these three chapters have in common is... Fairly obvious point. They're all about fighting. We might have questions about the fighting in the Old Testament. I'm going to talk about those in a little bit. But first we see that chapter 10 is a story of defeat. Saul is defeated. He's alone. And Israel is defeated and on the run. And chapters 11 and 12 are stories of victory. In chapter 11, we see a long list of David's best warriors and the stories of their victories. In chapter 12, we read how every single tribe of Israel came to King David and said, we're, we're going to fight with you. They brought their troops to him. And so the first words in chapter 10 of First Chronicles, after this long geneal genealogical introduction to start the story, this is like when he's saying, okay, once upon a time, instead he says, now the Philistines fought. Now before we get into all the details of what was happening in these chapters, it's just important that we make that simple observation. The author of Chronicles knew the people that he was writing to were struggling. They were discouraged. They were facing very difficult things. They were fighting just to live a life above the circumstances of their day-to-day -day life. 
He says, I'm not going to start at the high point of Israel's history when things were going well, when things were all the way that they should be. The land was at peace, shalom throughout the land. I'm going to start my story in the heat of the battle because that's where they are. And so the point of application for us is this, that all spiritual renewal, all spiritual growth comes as a result of struggle, of hard-fought struggle. It's never easy, it's never effortless, and it's never painless. I think some of us get discouraged because we have the wrong idea of what spiritual renewal looks like. We think the signs of spiritual renewal are when we arrive at a place of spiritual tranquility. We're just sitting in a garden and we're peaceful and the birds are singing and all is well. You say, that, that's renewal, that's spiritual renewal. We think a spiritual mature state is where we don't struggle, where our marriages are without conflict and effort. Our parenting is without frustration and fears. We don't struggle with our singleness or finding God's calling for our lives. Prayer comes easy. Reading the Bible comes so naturally. We think, why is it always so hard? Why does it always have to be a struggle? And we get discouraged. I think of the Apostle Paul. He's one of the most mature Christians of all time, a man who lived uh, in this renewal of his identity and his purpose on a regular basis. And one of the last things he ever wrote in his life was, I have fought the good fight. He said, I'm almost done. I look back over my entire life, and I've never arrived. I never just coasted. It was a fight to the very end. Amelia and I we watch a show called The 100. I don't know if anybody watches a show called The 100. It's, it's on the CW network. Nobody watches it, I can see. <laughs> We're very strange. It's about a post-apocalyptic world. And so there, there, there's these tribes. All the earth is divided in these tribes, and they're fighting each other. It's all about politics and power. It's very violent and gruesome, so I don't recommend it for family uh, TV time. But when someone dies, the reason I'm sharing this, when someone dies in this, in this show where it's all about fighting and battle, they always say these words, your fight is over. And from one angle, Christianity would tell us, don't expect to arrive in this life. Don't expect for the fight for spiritual renewal to be over until your time is done. And so it means that if fighting is a sign that God is at work, if struggle is a sign that God is doing something, God is working renewal in our lives, then struggle and failure and confusion and doubt, they shouldn't alarm us as much as indifference, apathy, and just coasting along. There's a quote in your bulletin from uh, Ralph Erskine. I love what he says about this. He says, faith without trouble or fighting is a suspicious faith, for true faith is a fighting faith, a wrestling faith. So you might be saying, okay, it's a fight, and that's somewhat encouraging to know that I'm not alone because I struggle. It seems like I'm wrestling a lot, so that's good. It's encouraging, but it's also not necessarily a relief to know this. Well, let me share with you that there's more, that the fight for spiritual renewal is not just any fight. It's a fight with impossible odds against us. And now you're saying... Well, that's even less of a relief, but let me explain. The difference between chapter 10 and chapters 11 and 12 
there was a defeat in chapter 10. Saul and the armies of Israel were defeated. We read a little bit about that. In chapters 11 and 12, we read all about victories. Now, the difference was not in the power and the strength of the enemies that Saul fought and David and his armies fought. They were, humanly speaking, both impossible opponents. The, the difference is in 11, chapter 9, which we did read, and that says this. David became greater and greater because the Lord of hosts was with him. The Lord of hosts is a military term. It means God and his heavenly armies. The difference was if God and his heavenly army is with you, then what seems impossible to you is not only possible to God, but it is easy for him. The application for us is God can work renewal in our lives exactly in the places where we think it's impossible. If you have uh, your Bible open, I want to point out a few stories here. These are great stories, 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. In this, uh, we read about David's three mighty men and how they um, partnered with him. And it says in verse 12, uh, next to him, this is talking about uh, the first of David's mighty men, there was a guy named Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Aohite. He had an unfortunate name, his father, Dodo. I wouldn't, I don't imagine a lot of people are going to be using that biblical name for their kids, but this is Eleazar. He was with David at Pasdamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley. The men fled from the Philistines, but he, Eleazar, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. This is a picture of two against all. David and Eleazar defeated an entire army of the Philistines, impossible odds. This is like when you're on the playground and there's a bunch of bigger kids or very, very talented kids in a sport, and then there's smaller kids or kids who've never played a sport, and these two kids say, it's us against all, two versus all. And then what happens is those kids just crush the little kids or crush the less talented kids, and they prove nothing except that they were more talented, which everyone knew in the first place. This is like that but different. This is the polar opposite because David and Eleazar had all the odds against them, and they said two versus all, and they won. The next story, I was really excited to read this story. This is one of those kind of obscure stories tucked in the corner of the Bible that when you read it, you go, wow, is that really there? Verse 22 of chapter 11. It's a guy named Benaiah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. You're like, wow. You feel like we're reading the story of the Avengers or something. This guy was like a, a hero of war. Two heroes, a lion, an Egyptian giant. Some of the versions say he chased the lion into the pit on a snowy day, and you're going, why was he out on a snowy day? And what did the lion do to him that he had to chase it and battle this lion? I don't know the answer to that, but what we see is that somehow Benaiah was a guy who prevailed 
in impossible odds. What's the point? I think the point is this. Where have you given up hope in your life? Where do you think the renewal of God and his work in your life is impossible? What are you running from? That might be exactly where God is calling you to fight so that he can show up and bring renewal to your life in that very place. That's the first point. We need to know that it's a fight. Secondly, we need to know what to fight. So these stories, these are stories about fighting Moabites, Philistines, Egyptians, lions. And we have two questions. How does this really all apply to my life, to fight for spiritual renewal? And if you're new to Christianity, if you're exploring, if you have questions, you might feel uneasy about all this language of battle. Why all this fighting? Why all this war? Is the God of the Old Testament a God of war and Jesus is, is a man of peace? How do these things connect? It's a big question, but I have a few thoughts that I want to share with all of you because I think the language of battle and war and fighting, it can be overplayed, it can be misused. We talk about culture wars, doctrinal battles, the fight for America. This passage is telling us when it comes to fighting, we need to know what to fight. A few thoughts on the reality of war in the Old Testament. It was a reality, but it was not the ideal or the goal. One of the main points in Chronicles is that David was not allowed to build the temple, the centerpiece of worship for Israel, because he was a man of war. It had to pass onto his son Solomon, whose name means peace. And under Solomon, the land was at peace. There was rest from war and fighting of enemies, and that's the goal. That's the ideal that the story of the Old Testament is reaching for. God of, the God of the Old Testament wants peace and rest, just like Jesus does. They're the same person. Secondly, there were strict rules for war. Battles were for a limited time and place, and the first rule, if you read in Deuteronomy 20, of war for Israel was to offer peace, to come to terms of peace. That included the Philistines, who earlier had agreed to peace, but now were the aggressor. They were the ones attacking Israel, and so Israel was on the defense. Thirdly, the fighting of the Old Testament is ultimately not about land or ethnicity, but it's about worship. Almost always in the ancient Near East, a conquered people was forced to worship the gods of the conquering people. They underwent forced conversion. And that's an important point to remember. Lastly, how does this all flow together into the New Testament? In the New Testament, there is a development and a clarification about what we are fighting. Who are the real enemies of our spiritual renewal? They are not other people or other groups. As Ephesians 6, 12 says, it's not flesh and blood. Jesus came. He did not fight and conquer the Romans. He fought the real enemies of our soul, the world the flesh, and the devil. And these are the enemies we fight for our own spiritual renewal. The world would be the ideas and belief systems that seek to make sense and order life apart from God and his rule. Our flesh is our own tendencies to move away from love for God into selfishness, and the devil acknowledges the real presence of spiritual evil in this world. I'm sharing all that because Chronicles is telling us we need to know how to fight the right 
battles. Because one of the things that prevents us from, from renewal is that we have a tendency to fight all the wrong fights. Advice that I've been given when, I, when we got married, when I had kids, was choose your battles wisely. Don't fight unnecessary fights. You can win a fight with your spouse, and it can be a loss for your marriage. You can win a battle with your kids, and it can be a loss for your parenting. You can win a fight in the workplace, but you end up losing what really matters there. What's interesting is that this same list of mighty warriors, it has already appeared in the Bible, in 2 Samuel. And the author of 2 Samuel, he put it at the end of that book. He said, this is an appendix and an afterthought. By the way, David has some mighty warriors. The author of Chronicles said, I want to put this in the front. Why? I think he was showing us that for David, he knew he couldn't fight alone. He wanted to see how David, he wanted us to see how David came to power and how he led this time of renewal. And the first thing we see is the right, right thing to fight for is to fight for help. Help is a key word throughout this passage. David came to his rule. David led a time of renewal with a lot of help. It wasn't alone. One of the main lessons of the difference between Saul and David is Saul did not admit his need for help until it was too late. And when he did, he sought help in all the wrong places. And here we see David from the very beginning knowing he needs help. In chapter 12, verse 18, uh, these warriors come to David and he says, how do I know that you're on my side? And in verse 18, one of the, the guys says to him, we are yours, O David, and peace. We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you. Peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. In 12 verse 1, it says, these are the men who helped him, David. How does this apply to us? The things worth fighting for are having intentional community in our lives. People who are with us in our fights against our real enemies. And being people who are fighting for others. Mother Teresa said this, there's nothing more calming in, a difficult, in difficult moments than knowing there's someone fighting with you. We need to fight to have those people in our lives, and we need to fight to be those people for others. So we need to know it's a fight for spiritual renewal. We need to know what to fight. And thirdly, we need to know why we fight. There's one thing in these two chapters that if you take this one thing away, with all the incredible triumphs and all the impossible victories, if you take this one thing away, none of it happens. None of it is even possible. And that one thing is actually one person, and that person is David. If David's not there, none of this happens. These warriors in this list of warriors, they're not fighting for self-preservation. They're not fighting for self-advancement. They're fighting for David and his kingdom. It was their love for David. It was their desire for his kingdom that caused them to fight. And that is why they fought. So this passage, if we were to treat it as a motivational speech and say, look at these warriors, you can be a warrior. Next time it snows, you can go outside and you can find a lion and you will defeat that lion. 
that would be a motivational speech without power because it all depends on David. There's a scene uh, from the movies, The Lord of the Rings. It's based out of, out of the books. It's one of my favorite books of all time, and I'm overdue for a Lord of the Rings illustration. But it, it's a scene between Eowyn and Aragorn. Aragorn is the king figure. He's kind of a Christ figure in the books. And Eowyn is a woman warrior. She wants to fight, and she can fight. And so Aragorn is going off, and she's, she has a conversation with him. I don't want to be left behind. I want to fight with you. And here's what their conversation looked like. Eowyn says, my Lord Aragorn, I am to be sent with the women into the caves. He says, that is an honorable charge. To mind the children, to find food and bedding when the men return? What renown is there in that? My lady, there may come a time for valor without renown. Who then will your people look to in their last defense? Let me stand at your side. I cannot command it. You do not command the others to, sit, to stay. They fight beside you because they would not be parted from you because they love you. That's one of my favorite scenes from the movie. That a figure like Aragorn brings out the best in all these warriors because of their love for him and desire to see his kingdom be established in Middle-earth. The readers of Chronicles, their first thought and their reaction when they were reading this that would have come to the normal reader, they were facing very difficult circumstances in life. They were very discouraged. This would not have been, first and foremost to them, a message, I need to be a Benaiah, I need to be a mighty warrior. They would have been thinking, I can't wait to see another David come. When will a greater David come to inspire courage in us like this? There's a story in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And you can turn there, but um, some of David's men heard him saying, Oh, how I wish I had water from the well in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem was under the control of the Philistine army. And three of these guys said, Let's go get David that water. And somehow they broke through, they got the water, they delivered it to him. And David says, when they, when they broke through the camp, they brought it. He wouldn't drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, before my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. David was saying, I will not enjoy anything that puts my people at risk while I hang back in safety. The only reason for them to risk their life for me is if I am risking my life with them and for them. And so what we're meant to see is a picture of the greater David to come. He will be a combination. He will be one who is like us, but he will be one who is unique among us, both at the same time. And in the Gospels, from the very beginning, we see Jesus presented as the greater David who was to come, the one who entered the fight with us. He's one of us, yet unique among us. That's what his entire ministry was about. He's showing us what we should be fighting sin, flesh, and spiritual evil, by entering into human history, experiencing temptation and the brokenness of this life, we see God is not fighting against us. God is with us, fighting for us. 
He's fighting against everything that would keep humanity from him. And ultimately, we see on the cross that Jesus fought our battles for us. He fought sin and judgment and death and evil on the cross in the greatest victory of all time against all odds. One man versus the entirety of human sin and death itself and all evil. This one man emerged victorious from the tomb. He is the greater David that was to come. Why do we fight for renewal? It's not for fame, not for renown. It's not out of duty and obligation. It's out of love for the one who fought for us. Final thoughts here. We need to know it's a fight. We need to know what to fight. We need to know why we fight. And lastly, we need to know who is fighting for us. Here's the difference between Christianity and all other belief systems. It's the answer to the question of why do we keep fighting? Why do we keep going? Why do we keep struggling? Why struggle to be a better person, to be good, for renewal for ourselves and others? The religious person says, fight for your standing before God, to be approved by God, for his blessing. The irreligious person says, fight for yourself. Fight for what you can get out of life before it's over. The Christian fights as one who has already been fought for, as one who has been loved. We fight in love for Jesus and his kingdom. That means God is fighting for us. I just want to take a moment as we close to just pause and reflect on what that means, that God is fighting for us. And it means, it means at least these two things, that God is committed to and focused on defeating our real enemies far more than we are. And he is infinitely more powerful than all of them combined, even at their worst. As you think about that, I just want to ask you, where are you fighting this morning? In your life right now, where is the fight to love God and love others the most difficult, the most discouraging for you? Where are you most in need of renewal? And as we close, I want you to think about this thing, whatever it is, and I want you to listen to these passages as God's word to you. We're going to have them up on the screen. They will fight against you, but not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Lastly, from Second Chronicles, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you know 
that it is a fight for us. And that this fight can leave us very discouraged, can leave us disillusioned, and it could just be so hard for us. And I pray as we've heard your word to us this morning, that you would meet us with profound encouragement, that you would release us from thinking that it's all up to us to fight whatever we're fighting, and that you would remind us why it is we fight in the first place, that we would know that Jesus has come. He's won the victory and the triumph in our stead, in our place. May that fill us with hope. And Lord, may you come through with the things that we are fighting that are keeping us from being renewed in love for you and love for others. I ask that you would, even this morning, show up in a powerful way for the things that seem impossible, the things that we have just given up hope on, that you would meet us right there and bring the transforming power of the gospel to us. Through the power of the Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.